0: Let's pray. Lord, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you are at all interested in sports like I am, perhaps you've heard the term in the zone. Uh, having coached basketball for a long time, there are some guys who just get in the zone they could throw up a ball from virtually anywhere in the court, and it seems to go in. There are quarterbacks who, it seems, get into the zone, and all they can do is throw one completion after another, after another. Even hockey players get in the zone where it just seems like they're virtually unstoppable. Everything seems to go right for those who are in the zone. But let me ask you, have you ever had times in your life when nothing seemed to go right? When you were out of the zone? Now, I can tell you, there are many times in my life, I would tell you, that um, could be best described for a song they used to sing on hee-haw. Some of you may remember it. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Maybe some of you even remember the movie Wall Street. When I was working on my MBA, remember we had to watch that movie, and Michael Douglas' character, Gordon Gecko had this to say about a rather unlucky businessman. He said, if this guy owned a funeral parlor, no one would die. That's how bad his luck would be. Now, speaking of movies, uh, I want to give you an outstanding example of a complete and utter failure. The biggest box office disaster ever was this movie called Zizek's Road. How many of you actually ever heard of that? I don't think so. It had a several million dollar plus budget. It actually had a couple of uh, so-so names. I think you can see Catherine Heigel and Ted Sizemore. Yet it only made $30 at the box office. It ran for a week in Dallas, Texas before it was shut down. And during that one week it was open, it sold only six tickets Two of them to cast members who asked for their money back after they saw it. I mean, talk about a dismal failure. Now, there's nothing really funny about failure. I mean, there's nothing funny about feeling beat down in life. There's nothing funny about being out of the zone. And many of us kind of know about that personally. We know what it's like to sometimes wonder whether our best days are behind us. We all probably know from time to time um, that it seems as if God has, no longer has need of us or that maybe he has actually forgotten about us or he just quite doesn't remember our address. So when we find ourselves out of the zone, what? Well, You might actually be feeling this way today. But I want you to know you would not be the first person to ever have that feeling. And you were not even the very first believer to ever have that feeling. Uh, King David, uh, who was called in the Bible a man after God's own heart, and still knew what it was like to suddenly find himself completely out of the zone and into the fire. Now, I don't have this up on the screen, but it comes from Psalm 44. In Psalm 44, David said this, My disgrace is before me all day long, and my face is covered with shame at the taunts of those who reproach and revile me. Because of the enemy who is bent on revenge. All this happened to us, though we had not forgotten you or been false to your covenant. Our hearts had not turned back. Our feet had not strayed from your path. Maybe some of you can feel about the same way. You don't know that you've done anything wrong, but it sure seems like life is going bad. There's a contrasting uh, example that's found in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. That's what we're studying in Bible class on Sunday mornings. It's a very short little book. It's only three chapters long. And uh, one thing I can tell you is we know absolutely nothing about Habakkuk, except that he wrote about 600 years before Christ was born to this world. He talks about a season of judgment That the children of Israel endured a season in which they experienced trouble after trouble and failure and oppression. And actually, as you read through the whole book of Habakkuk, you're going to see that this was a judgment that they actually brought on themselves through open rebellion against the ways of the Lord, that their behavior reaped the inevitable consequences Now, the first thing we need to do whenever we find ourselves out of the zone or in the fire, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. We should probably ask ourselves, what was my role in what I'm experiencing? I mean, did I play a part in all this bad stuff that's happening to me? Or did I truly just get blindsided by life? I mean, did I set myself up for failure through my own sinful behavior? Now, this may not come as news to some of you. It may come as some news to some of you. But sometimes the reason our lives seem to have come completely unraveled is because we have allowed sinful behavior to take a root in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Now, I'm not saying that sin is the cause of all the problems you have all the time. But I'm going to tell you, it probably is some of the time. You see, when you and I get too friendly with sin, God often lets our actions run their full course so that maybe through the consequences of that sin, God actually can get your attention. So when you find yourself out of the zone or feel like you're kind of thrown into the fire, when nothing seems to be going right in your life, and when God suddenly seems to be very silent in your prayer life, it's time for you to do a reality check. Now, I used the word judgment a little bit ago, but there's actually a better word, and the word probably is correction. It's not that God is somehow getting even, it's that he is doing what you need him to do in order to get you back on the track of doing what's best in your life. Now, I know that whenever I feel kind of out of the zone or out of sorts or in the fire, Uh, The one of the first questions that I, I, I try to teach myself is this, God, are you somehow correcting me here? And if so, show me what I need to do. And sometimes, as David mentioned in Psalm 44 that I read before, they're not the result of correction. David said this happened even though we did nothing to cause it. And see, during those particular times those seasons, God is not necessarily correcting us. What I've learned is that he's probably preparing us for the next big thing that he wants to do in our lives. Let me take you back to that story of Jesus' good friend, Lazarus. Most of you know that story. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. He was very sick, and his family sends word to Jesus uh, to come, and Jesus waited and waited and waited and waited and when he finally got there Lazarus had been in the grave 4 days now the Jews were pretty sure that a person was dead after 3 days they were absolutely positively sure that when decay set in on the 4th day he was as good as gone now this was not judgment against Lazarus's family it was not God's correction God was preparing Lazarus, and he was also preparing Mary and Martha and the entire community of Bethany for something that was going to be absolutely spectacular. They were about to see the glory and the power of God come alive in their presence when they rolled away that stone. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out and he was alive. They saw something pretty spectacular. Sometimes life's most difficult seasons aren't correction then. They're just merely preparation for something great. We just got out of a week in prison. I spend time with a lot of friends. Many of you know that the average sentence for these guys down there is 88 years. Most of them are never going to get out. But occasionally we find a few. One man spoke briefly before a worship service on Tuesday night. He had been at Angola for 32 years. But he realized that that was no, not so much about correction, although he needed to be in a correctional institution for what he'd done. But he also came to realize that God was preparing him for something even greater when he got out to be a minister to other people. So here's the amazing thing about how God works. We see it spelled out in the book of Habakkuk in just a moment, but with repentance, with correction, correction, uh, becomes preparation. And sometimes it's necessary for God to kind of pull us back a little bit by the back of our neck and allow us to reap the spiritual consequences of our behavior. I mean, how many of you uh, who've raised children have ever told your kids, "Okay, if that's the way you want it, go ahead. And you said that knowing full well (laughs) this was not going to go good for them. But you used it So that they could learn something from that situation. See, when we resist, when that happens, we have the option to resist God's correction. There's no doubt about it. Or we can stay out of the zone. We can continue to live in the flesh. Or we can surrender to God's spirit. uh, And what he's telling us to do, we can turn to him in repentance and we can receive his correction. And what happens after we receive the correction of God? Well, it's very simple. He begins to prepare us for something bigger and better. In our Christian life. Now, I want you to understand something. And that's that even though it is necessary at times for God to correct our relationship with him, this is not about judgment. This is not about punishment. It's about transformation. God wants better things from his people. You all know John 3.16, about how God so loved the world. But we often forget about John 3.17, It says, for God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. See, God uses unpleasant times. God uses unpleasant events to correct us and prepare us. And usually it's a little bit of both. One of my favorite Christian authors is C.S. Lewis. He one time wrote, pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Now, someone else said that what that's what it takes to get our attention. There's another writer. This is the famous Greek guy, Anonymous. Uh, he wrote, when we succeed, we tend to party. When we fail, we tend to ponder. Now, for the rest of the time this morning, I just want to talk about what to do when you kind of feel out of the zone, in the fire, a little at sorts with God. You know, when everything seems to be ten times more difficult than you think it ought to be, when God's blessings seem just beyond your reach. Now, the preliminary step, as I already kind of mentioned, is to do a self check, a reality check. To ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. After all, the Holy Spirit's living inside of you. I I always think of the Holy Spirit as the resident president. He's in there. He's willing to help you out. Ask. Let Him speak to you. Let Him convict you of the sin that stands in the way of you being able to experience the fullness of God and God's blessings in your life. Now, earlier I mentioned the book of Habakkuk. Uh, This book closes with some of the most uh, poignant and powerful words in all of Scripture. Uh, These words apply to you if you're going through kind of a difficult time right now. Uh, They teach you a principle that will help you move from out of the zone back into the zone, from the desert to the oasis, from the fire into a life of freedom and victory. And we're talking about here the power of just one word. One word. Now, I have preached from Habakkuk a few times. I have taught the book of Habakkuk. I'll do that eventually here. We get that far. Uh, But when reading through it again not long ago, just in preparing uh, some materials for our Bible class here at St. Mark's, I found Habakkuk preaching to me. You see these words from Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Now, it was when I was reading those words, I thought, I think Habakkuk is talking to me. He's talking about some grumbling and some griping and complaining, I think I had been doing. But I kept on reading. He says, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And at that moment, God spoke to me through the words of this ancient prophet, through one word, and the word is yet. Now that leads me to ask this question, so how's your yet? How's your yet doing these days? I have to tell you a little bit of background with that little phrase. Monday night at Angola, we went out to worship, and... They've kind of changed things. It used to be I used to preach every night after teaching all days, but in order to give the inmate pastors a little bit more time for them to actually preach in front of their own fellowships, their own little churches, we were just asked, just enjoy ourselves. Now, they normally ask me if I will share a word or two with the people and introduce who's with me, so I could introduce Nancy, of course, and you know whoever else I have with me. But as I got there that night, the pastor asked me whether I would like to share a word with the guys. And I said, you mean preach? He said, whatever you want to do. And I thought, oh, great. You know, when you show up at a church and you kind of get asked to preach. So I sat down and I borrowed a piece of paper. I don't know from Nancy or Cheryl or whoever. And I thought I should make at least a few notes. And I wrote down a few words. I wrote down Old Testament prophecy Genesis five, and that's a story for another day. And then, how's your yet? The reason I put down how's your yet was because the first Bible passage I could actually remember, and normally I can remember a whole bunch of them, but the very first one was still fresh in my mind from Habakkuk, and I looked at it, and I thought, I can talk about how's your yet. And the reason I did that was because I think the success of the Christian life kind of turns on that word, yet. The ability to live as an overcomer turns on that word, yet. See, no matter what happens in my life, good, bad, or ugly, even when I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, even when I pass through seasons of drought, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. So I'm asking you, folks, how's your yet? How's it doing these days? Have you been grumbling, complaining, and uh, experienced a lack of some kind? Well, then I'd say, how's your yet? Evidently, your yet needs a good kick in the yet. See, when life doesn't seem to be going your way, you need to do something that isn't easy and does not come naturally. You need to say, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord, yet I will be joyful in God, my Savior. See, this is a conscious decision that isn't driven by circumstances. It's not driven by emotions. It's driven by surrender. See, during difficult times, you need to turn your eyes away from whatever is disappointing you in life turning your eyes away from whatever is bringing discouragement to your life, turn your eyes away from anything that seems to be a lack of result, turn your eyes away from all the disenchantment that also often follows failed expectations, and make a deliberate choice to turn your eyes toward Jesus. Why? So that your joy is placed in him. Now, I have said this in a sermon many times over in my 28 years of being a pastor. I don't know whether it's something I came up with or whether somebody else said, you know, because after a while you can't remember where you read it or whether you said it. Uh, but it's this. You will never know that God is all you need until you come to a place where God is all you have. And some of you know exactly what that's all about. You came to that point in life. Where you realize that all you really need is him. See, in his mercy, this is the interesting, in God's mercy, he actually allows us to come to that place. You know, for guys at Angola, it's sentenced to life where God calls them short. And they seem to think that they've lost everything they had. Because many of these people, the first people who stop visiting them are their friends happens to anybody that goes to jail or prison. The very first people who stop coming are their so-called friends. And then the second group of people that stop visiting are their family. That's why it's so very important to maintain that relationship. I'm humbled every time I hear this. Uh, The one pastor the other night says, how do you know Doc loves us? And the answer is because he keeps coming back. I mean, I'm kind of the constant for some men in that prison because I come back and visit them and continue establishing a relationship with some of them. You know, but they say they thought they'd lost everything because many guys tell me when I'm there, my aunt died this last week. My mother died a month ago. My father is gone. My sister is gone. I don't even know where my children are. There are many guys, would tell you, after Katrina, they've never heard from their family again. Don't know whether they're living or dead or whatever. Everything is gone. Their way of life is gone. Their past history is gone. And they could look at nothing but a dismal future to live in a prison for the rest of their life and to be buried with no one coming to their funeral. I would say you're out of the zone when you feel that way. You feel in the fire, but I can tell you that there are so many guys who will tell you the best thing that ever happened to me was landing in here to be in this faith community that loves me and walks with me. And where I know that even though it is like God stripped me of everything I had, he gave me the very one thing that I really needed. And that was Jesus Christ. Now that's happened to some of you in in maybe not such a spectacular way. Sometimes you are coasting along in life, and boom, like that, you're laying in the hospital bed for a week or so, and you're wondering what on earth happened. And it's at that point that maybe God got your attention. Maybe for even the very first time in your life. You're just kind of drifting along, being a kind of a in-name-only Christ follower. And you suddenly realize that you'd almost lost everything that you ever had. And you suddenly realize that perhaps God had more in store for you. So you find yourself saying, yet. Yet will I rejoice. See, in God's mercy, he allows us sometimes to come to that place where we suddenly realize that all we have is him. He allows that to happen in our life, not to beat us down, not to beat us up, but to prepare us for something even greater. I think of one of my other longtime friends at Angola bishop Cannyhill, you don't know him but he was he was kind of like the pastor of the pastors in this prison when i started working there 13 14 years ago but by god's grace i mean he was put in prison when he was 17 18 years old but by god's grace he was let out after 40 and the 47 48 years he had no relatives he had nobody but guess what a man by the name of jim and maybe you've heard of him he passes the Brooklyn Tabernacle. They have the big choir, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. It's known worldwide. It said, Bishop Tannehill, you come live with us, and you can minister to the young people in that congregation. So God had literally spent 40 years of his life preparing him for that moment. And today he still speaks and talks to people and encourages them not to give up. You know, life is full of paradoxes, that's for sure. Living in the zone is kind of one of them. I mean, God has promised us a life full of joy. Uh, He's promised us a life of peace. He's promised us a life of fulfillment. He's promised contentment and happiness and meaning. But, and there's another great Bible word, but we don't achieve that kind of life just by grabbing it or taking it in spite of the fact that the commercial says that you only go around once in life, so what? Grab all the gusto you can. See, we experience the abundant life that Jesus promised, not by fighting for it or grabbing for it, but through a surrender to the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake, he said, we'll find it. I want to read to you a quote from a book by Watchman Nee. If you've never written, read anything by Watchman Nee, I, I suggest you might want to try it sometime. Uh, this is from his book, The Normal Christian Life. He says, God's means of delivering us from sin is not by making us stronger and stronger, but by making us weaker and weaker. This is surely rather a peculiar way of victory, you say, but it is the divine way. God sets us from the the dominion of sin, not by strengthening our old man, but by crucifying him. Not by helping him to do anything, but by removing him from the scene of action. See, even though Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet... This is the principle he's talking about. He's talking about the crucified life. He's talking about the surrendered life. He's talking about an attitude that says things may not be the way that I want them in my life right now, yet I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will still be happy in God, my Savior. And guess what? When you reach that moment of surrender, maybe some of you remember singing a song like that one time. I surrender all. At that moment of surrender, the moment of yieldedness, I don't know whether that's a real word or not, but that moment of yieldedness, God is able to lift you up and fill you with His power. Now, I don't have the words that follow Habakkuk 3, 17 so, but if you read a little bit further in verse 19, it goes on to say, The Lord, the sovereign Lord, is my strength. Now, like... All of you, I know what it's like to sometimes feel powerless or helpless or hopeless. Uh, I I know what it's like to feel sometimes like I've really got nothing left to give. Uh, sometimes God brings me to those moments, I think, because he needs to correct me. But I also believe that he sometimes does that as he does it to you because he's only preparing you. For what is next? And also believe sometimes it's a little bit of both. Sometimes we need to be taken down a few notches before God can lift us back up and use us. You know, without fail, every time I've ever reached that moment of surrender and said kind of in the midst of fear, or pain or regret, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. Every time, every time without fail... God has met me in that moment, and he has filled me with his strength. And I'm here today just to reassure all of you, reassure all, that he'll do the same for you. I'm not anybody special that God should do it for me only. I'm no more special than any of the people that call on his name and believe in him. And all I'm telling you is that no matter how desperate you may feel today, uh, no matter how disappointed you may feel today, No matter how discouraged you may feel today, how bummed out you feel today, how out of sorts you feel today, all you need to do is turn your eyes away from what? Those circumstances. Turn your eyes on Jesus and make a deliberate decision to be joyful in him. And like Habakkuk says, when you do that, he will meet you right there. And then he will bring and be your strength. See, surrender leads to joy. Joy leads to strength. You know, when somebody says, my strength is in the Lord, guess what? They are joyful people. And see, when that happens, suddenly, boom, you're back in the zone. Habakkuk 3.18 says, he makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights, kind of like the old hyrax. Remember the rock badger? I can run to the rock. He's saying that when God is my strength, my life works. Well, friends, you know, there is no joy in defeat, that's for sure. Like some of you, I'm a, a fan of sports teams. Now, I, I wore this tie today with the letter N on it. I could tell you it's because of Nancy. <laughs> but she would be the first not to believe that. It's because I happen to be a Nebraska Cornhusker fan. And they won last night. I went to bed last night didn't watch the game because they were playing out on the West Coast. And I went to bed hoping that they'd win. And I remember a promise I'd made to myself a number of years back that whether they won or lost, it was no longer going to make, determine how I felt the next day. I know my daughter, who's a Horns fan. I saw something she posted on Facebook this morning that said, oh, so close, and yet so far, with, a, I think, a frowny face. There's no joy in defeat. I mean, if I have woke up this morning and turned on my computer and went to ESPN.com and saw that my Cornhuskers, who were playing a team that had the longest home winning streak in the nation, had lost, there'd be no joy. I don't know whether I'd have worn this tie or not. But I turned it on and saw that the longest home winning streak in the nation is gone. 55 to 19 gone. And so Nancy knows when she walked by my office this morning, I said, here, listen to this. And I fired up the Nebraska fight song. There was happiness in the land. All I'm telling you, friends, is there's no joy in defeat, really. There's no joy in failure. I mean, I don't know anybody who ever said, oh, wow, I failed again. How happy I am. I mean, there's no joy in broken dreams. There's no joy in failed expectations. There's no joy in giving it all you got and getting nothing in return. I mean, these things, those kinds of things tend to drain and suck the life right out of you. Here comes one of those great Bible words again. But. But there is joy in Jesus. And when you make the deliberate choice to say. And here comes another great little biblical word. Yet I will rejoice in him. The life that seemed to be drying up. Will suddenly be filled to overflowing. I'll say it again. That one word. I mean life kind of turns on that one little phrase. Yet. I will rejoice in the Lord. Our tendency is to want to say, God, when things turn around, I will be full of joy and I'll be sure to say thank you. Until then, I'm going to just sit here and wallow in my misery. And I can imagine God in heaven when you're saying that, saying, it ain't going to work that way. (laughs) I know that's not the way it works. What he would want to whisper in your ear, or maybe even shout in your ear, would be turn your eyes from everything that's wrong in your life and turn your eyes to Jesus. (coughs) Make the deliberate choice to be joyful in him, and he will be your joy. Maybe that's why the Bible says rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. I mean, once you've rejoiced once, you've got to do it again. Right, Joyce? Right. Right. And not only will he be your joy, he will be your strength. He will give you the speed of a deer. And he'll take you to heights that you'd never even thought about before. And you're going to suddenly find yourself back in the zone. May God grant that to us all. So how's your yet? Yet will I rejoice. May God see to it that that happens in our lives. Amen.